Welcome to the Limitless Potential Podcast, where together we will dive into the personal, business, and career-rich tips, techniques, stories, and experiences of some incredibly successful and inspirational people, each with their own perspectives and journeys, and each with golden nuggets of wisdom which might just change your life. I'm Tracy Stone, and I'm a master trainer in a number of career supercharging techniques, a transformational coach, international best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and a woman discovering and evolving my very own limitless potential day by day. another episode of Limitless Potential and today I am really excited to welcome an amazing business mind and a wonderful gentleman all around, Joe Foster. So Joe's grandfather, interestingly, was the founder of J.W. Foster and Sons Athletic Shoes and they were the inventors of the spiked running shoes that we will all have seen. And I'm sure Joe is going to take us through the history of that as well. Uh, but Joe and his late brother, Jeff, were born into the J.W. Foster and family business. But in 1955, on their return home after two years of national service, they found the business still rooted very much in the 1930s. Joe and Jeff left the Foster business to set up a new sports shoe company, originally called Mercury Sports Footwear, which after 18 months was renamed to the very highly recognized and esteemed Reebok. As the surviving founder of Reebok, Joe still welcomes the opportunity to travel and recount the early stories from startup to taking Reebok to a $4 billion business, overtaking Adidas and Nike to become the world's number one sports brand. So amazing and so inspirational. Joe has written his book, Shoemaker, to share his story and to help inspire the next generation of budding entrepreneurs. And he's here with us today to talk about his journey and how he taps into his own limitless potential. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Gracie, thank you. You've told my story well there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's a wonderful opportunity. I, I can't wait to hear all of the juicy details. So, Joe, maybe if you would, can you bring us back a little bit in time and kind of tell us that story of you as a young boy growing up and take us through that journey and, um, and tell us all we should know? Well, of course, the, uh, you, you mentioned my grandfather and... Uh, I never knew my grandfather. Unfortunately, he died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935, 18 months, I think, so 15 months after he died. Um, but I was born on his birthday, the 18th of May, which, which of course, as far as my grandmother was concerned, I, I'm, <clears throat> I've just come back. And, of course, she looked after me all the time, any time she could do, she would do anything, yeah. So, uh, and, and I, of course, was given his name. 
because I, I was born on his birthday, they called me Joe. He was called Joe. Um, <clears throat> in fact, it, we, we are in the family, it's JW, Joseph William, and all the family have a JW. My brother was Jeffrey William. Uh, well, my older brother, my younger brother was John William. My uncle was John William. My father was James William. So the JW runs in the family. But of course, I, I picked up Joseph because I, I came and I was born on my grandfather's birthday for some 15 months after he died. Uh, and of course, we're, we're talking about 1935. Mm. So if we're, we're talking about me, four years after I am born, we have World War II. And of course, that, uh, well, that stopped a lot of things. Uh, so I, I never really had much of an early education. Fortunately, mother was really good. She used to get books. We used to go to the library. So, uh, I was able to read and write and do all the things. And you, you, do, you do pick up a lot of uh, uh, education. I think, I mean, the wonderful thing is because it was really at the end of the, end of the war in 1945 before we got schools back. Because, number one, there were no teachers. <clears throat> the teachers, they were they'd gone to war. <clears throat> and the second thing is that they, the school buildings have been taken over. As I think they call them ERED posts, ARPs, ERED posts. So they were then used as uh, shelter and possibly if, uh, if if there was a, a big problem, they would be used as uh, uh, sort of hospitals and things like that. <clears throat> so no education really <clears throat> officially until I'm 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And then I obviously didn't have much time at uh, primary school before we went to secondary. And eventually I went to college, to engineering college. And growing up quite normally, you know, you don't realise there's a war on when you're four years old and five years old. That doesn't seem to make any difference to life. You just have your buddies who are living in the same street and out and about, and you go and kick a ball about and do the usual things that kids do. Oh, but there were no lights. We didn't have any lights, of course, no street lights. It was everything. Uh, as soon as it went dark, it was dark. <laughs> that was it. <clears throat> so, uh, well, and of course, Bolton, weren't you? This is Bolton. This is Bolton, yes. And uh, Bolton is about uh, 10 miles away from Manchester. And uh, whilst a few bombs did drop on Bolton, it was mainly by mistake, uh, but they did drop a lot of bombs on Manchester. And with everything being dark, you could see the red glow uh, because Bolton was slightly higher elevation than, than Manchester, and we could see um, the docks at uh, Manchester Burning. So, you know, those are memories. Oh, I mean, also the memory, of course, is the air raid uh, warnings. Mm-hmm. That, uh, not every day, but uh, quite a lot, the air raid warnings came on and uh, everybody had to go into the shelter. Well, I think they went into the shelters because they built shelters for us. Every house had a shelter. <clears throat> and I think for the first six months, maybe everybody used the shelters. Then they just didn't bother. Like, well, they're not bombing Bolton, so why do we need to go in a shelter? So the shelter became more of a, a sort of a garden shed. Everything else went. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Okay, at the end of the war, I'm 10 years old. I have an education, and uh, I think um, during the war, we were in the scouting movement, and that was really good for us. Both Jeff and myself were in the scouting movement. It teaches you a little bit of independence, things to do, and uh, how you can enjoy life. And uh, I uh, 
As I say, I went to college. Uh, I finished college at 17, and that's when I joined the J.W. Foster Company. Mm. My brother, Jeff, he'd, he'd been in the company since he was uh, 14. So he started much younger than me. What kind and of jobs did you guys start with? What What was that? What, what kind of job did you start with? Well, both of us actually started the same thing because Jeff start, started as a, a clicker. Now, what's a clicker? Do you know what a clicker is? I don't know what a clicker is. You have no idea. No. Well, of course, the shoes, all our shoes were made from leather. And uh, you cut the upper top part, the upper part of the shoe, you cut that out of leather. So we had leather skin, a big skin of leather, um, a cowhide, as it were. You put the pattern on, then you have a very sharp knife, and you cut round this with a knife. And as you as you finish the cut, because you cut it on a on a board, on a, on a wooden board, which is quite soft, the knife digs into the board as well. And as you come off, it comes off with a click. Right. So that's who, that's where, my, <clears throat> where the name clicker comes from. Okay. So I started off uh, <clears throat> in the business, cutting out the uppers, and then the uppers would go to the machinist who would sew the bits and pieces together so that it looked like a shoe before being lasted. And, and, but, I mean, that's where I started. But, of course, I went along and learned more about shoemaking, learned how to last the shoes. And then eventually I got onto this wonderful machine uh, which sewed the sole on. So the sewing machine, which sold the sole to the to the upper, mm-hmm. and that that was that was good fun. <clears throat> My father really he, he used to use that machine, and it was only uh, I, I was the only person he, he ever let go on the machine. My brother didn't go on that machine at all. I don't know why, but it seemed to think my my father seemed to think that I could probably operate it, and uh, yeah, so. That was my experience in the uh, in the workshop. I, I worked there for one year, and as you mentioned, uh, Jeff and I both went to do national service. We went more or less at the same time. He was older than me, but he had been deferred, whereas I went at 18, he went at uh, 21. Wow. Uh, just before he was 21, he was two years older, so we almost went at the same time. I went before him, and I think he was six months after me. Mm-hmm. That he what went. did you do in your national service? Well, I was in the RAF, and in the RAF we had radar, and um, I was I was posted down to Felixstowe in the UK, mm-hmm. and they were building a new uh, a new radar system at that time, uh, and that was across the River Deben, which was just a few miles away from Felixstowe, and this was an underground bunker. So it went down and underground, and I, I think it just went out under the sea for a short way. Mm-hmm. But that was our underground bunker where we uh, controlled the airplanes from. So I was I was on radar. And we, we were controlling fighters. In those days, we, we had the, I think it was a mosquito, um, probably, and we also had American fighters as well, and they they used to practice interceptions. So you'd have two planes, and one would practice sort of coming down on the other plane as, as though he was sort of uh, wow. well shooting down, I suppose. So that was that was an interesting time, yes. Although I, I, I well, 
Yes, we did two years, but I only did one year at Radar because I played badminton. And badminton, in the RAF, I think in, in most of the forces, they love sport. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, was, I was reasonably good at badminton. So I, uh, for the second year of my time in the forces, I played badminton all the time. I, we just went around playing matches. So <clears throat> whilst I was on Radar, I, I was sort of not there. I was playing badminton. Yeah, that was that was good fun, and uh, it was the end after coming back from doing our national service. You know, you learn an awful lot when you. I guess it's a bit like going to university these days. You're taken away from home. Well, you know, your mother's not there anymore to do the washing, to make the beds, to do make your meals and whatever. So you've got to look after yourself a bit more, and uh, you begin to look around and think, mm, "What's all this about?" and so coming back after doing our two years of national service, we came back and we t- took a look at the J.W. Foster business. As I said, my grandfather died in 1933, and from that time on, my uncle and father had looked after the business, even though for a big part of the business, my my grandmother really sort of was the uh, the matriarch. She she kept everything working fine. But it was during uh, our national service, but grandmother died. And, and it was at that time when father and uncle, well, they had the opportunity to do things, but they just did not get on. Mm. In fact, they were more fighting each other than they were uh, talking to each other. And uh, I don't know if you know the story about Addy, Adolf Dassler, Addy Dassler, and Rudy Dassler. Rudy Dassler, they, they were brothers. And they were the same as my father and uncle. They just couldn't get on. They fought. and uh, So eventually, Rudy left the company and set up Puma. Right. Oh, right. So, yeah. So Adidas, Adidas mm-hmm. and Rudy Dasa set up Puma. Yeah. So, and they were, they were, one was at one side of the town, the other at the other side of the town. And there was a lot of... Um, aggravation they, they fought each other mm-hmm. which was really in a way it worked for them because that's how they drove the business forward mm-hmm. there was such a competition but um fosters my father my uncle they just continued feuding they continued fighting they didn't neither of them would go on their own and split or whatever and so when jeff and i came back from doing our national service we could see this this situation, and of course, I and I used to say to my father, "Look, you know, this this isn't doing any good. We've got to do something. Why, you know, why don't we set up a separate company?" And he didn't want to know. Yeah, my father just did not want to know. No, and all he could say to me was, "Joe, when your uncle's gone and I'm gone, this will be your company, and you and Jeff, you can do what you like with it." I said, Dad, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the plan. Yeah. No, we don't want you to go, but this company will be gone long before you were. Mm-hmm. Didn't make any difference. Couldn't, I don't know whether, you know, did, did both of them live through two world wars? And when you live through two world wars, do you lose the energy? Do you lose the drive? Do you lose the reason what you're doing with your business, mm. does it just become uh, 
a means of making a living, which I think it had just become a means of making a living, that uh, they could make these running shoes, they could sell them, they made, they made rugby boots, they made uh, wrestling boots, um, cricket boots, they made all types of, but although it wasn't a big company, it was only a small company. Mm. And they didn't have any sales representatives, they didn't do any marketing, they just did a little bit of advertising in different magazines. And they were happy with that. You know, they couldn't see that uh, when we were the Adidas company had started to import their shoes into the UK. Mm -hmm. um, by the time Jeff and I eventually, um, I was 23, Jeff was 25, by the time we, we decided since father won't do anything, we have to go it alone. By the time we decided that, Adidas had come into the UK market and they owned football. We couldn't get into football. For us to try and get into football would have been so expensive. Yeah. Because they, they already had it. They were paying athletes. They were paying footballers. And we just didn't have that sort of money. They had an established so, brand. They were an established brand. And they were, they were a big company. Mm. We were only a small company. They were a big company. So uh, we, we chose to go for cycling at first. And then we, we came into, into uh, athletics, running, whatever. We chose cycling because Foster's, whilst they had made cycle shoes, they were now more into running and rugby and other things. So we didn't want to compete. We were being very nice. We didn't want to compete with the, uh, the family company. We would be able to start off with, with cycling. So that's where we did. But we, we, we set up our factory six miles away from Bolton. Our first factory was in Berry which is six miles away, and uh, we, we rented a, an old brewery. The brewing company had moved on, and they'd got themselves a nice new brewery, but the old brewery, it was three floors. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, but the ground floor had no windows. Now, whether that's something to do with brewing uh, beer, I have no idea, but there's no windows, so we couldn't use the ground floor. Mm -hmm. And the top floor... Well, the roof was totally shot up. The rain came in at so many points, and the uh, the owners of the building, the brewing company, just didn't seem to want to do a repair on the job. So we couldn't use the top floor. All we had on the top floor were buckets and cans just to catch, catch the water as it was running in. So we used the middle floor. And uh, that was okay, except it was an old building. Mm. So all our machinery that we bought, we put around the outside next to the wall. So, so we didn't want to put it in the middle of the floor because it was like, mm, you know, this machinery is fairly heavy stuff. Yeah. And we, we didn't want to find ourselves on the ground floors <laughs> with, <laughs> with the, uh, the floor giving way. So we, we were on the middle floor and that was our first factory. Wow. I mean, quite a journey. You were young men as well, establishing this business. Yes. But, you know, when you're young, what can go wrong? Everything is possible. <laughs> yes. Nothing can go wrong. And if you naive. when you're young, you wouldn't take any chances and do anything. Oh, well, I think this is, you know, people ask me, can, uh, can I be an entrepreneur? I'm 50. 
And yes, you can be an entrepreneur. Of course you can. But, you know, it's not as easy when you're 50. It's much easier when you're young because you can make mistakes. You can fail and not worry too much about it because, you know, you're not at that stage of life where you really, really need. However, when we, we had left the J.W. Foster Company primarily because we could see that for the future, we we need a, we need to make a living. We we, we need something that uh, this company is going to go down. It's going to fail. And <clears throat> while it stayed where it was, companies like Adidas and Puma and uh, whatever they would just come and take our business. Yeah. So the reason for leaving was not because we we felt that we make we would make the best running shoes in the world. No, it was because we needed we needed a living. We needed something that uh, would bring money in. Yeah. So that was our first uh, first thinking, and of course, then you get into the business, and once you get into the business, um, you get to we get to do we got to do some of the things that Fosters never did, and we really became very close to the athletes. And every Saturday morning, <clears throat> all the athletes from local clubs, so many would come round to the factory. They, they would, they wanted our shoes, that's fine, but they'd also come and it was a bit of a sort of place to come and talk about sport, talk about running, talk about whatever, and uh, buy a pair of shoes. And, you know, if if we needed some electrical work doing or some joiner work doing, there was always an electrician or a joiner. Uh, it would just come on and say, oh, yeah, I can do that. So we got a lot of work done for a pair of shoes. <laughs> Ideal, good exchange. Yes, but what he did is it, we, we were sort of a community. Mm. That we, we actually were not just going, we didn't go to work, make a shoe, go and sell it. No, we were part of a community. Uh, and as such, uh, we would get plenty of advice on this. This works, that doesn't work, and whatever. So we could we could design our shoes to make sure that uh, they worked for these uh, these guys, and uh, and in that way we became known throughout the UK. We became known as the running shoe people. We were Reebok. They were the running shoe people. So but of course, your marketing research was being done um, in a very authentic way. Hmm. Oh yeah, we we used to go to events, running events. So we we would actually go and sell at running events. So we'd go take the car and the, fill it up with shoes in the back, and then go and sell sell the product. So, uh, but I mean, I had, I had complained to my father that we didn't have any sales reps to go around to the sports stores. Why are we not sending? <clears throat> so I decided I would go. <clears throat> now, yeah, I told my father he should be doing it. Well, Foster should be doing it. Reebok had better do it. So uh, I used to go and call on these uh, retailers, and that was okay. I sold quite a few, but more often than not, I would walk into a sports store and see the manager or the buyer, and uh, he'd say, yes, who are you? I'd say, I'm Reebok. And he'd say, who's Reebok? Yeah. Well, so I'd show him the products. Yeah. Yeah, nice products, those. And then he'd look up and he'd look at his shelves and he'd say, look, I've got Adidas and I've got uh, Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that was a question. Why do I need Reebok? And I, and I realised he didn't. He didn't need Reebok. Mm. He, he, 
he was an in-between. He wasn't my customer. My customer was the athlete, the yeah. people who would put the shoes on and run. So uh, I, I took I took up being a sales rep, and I probably lasted about six months being a sales rep. And I realized that this 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 isn't the way. I, I even actually took other brands. I, I took on a, a company that were selling tennis, uh, uh, tennis clothing and uh, another company that were um, darts that sold darts and and yeah I, I could I could do all right but I, I and I could make money being being a sales rep but this is not going to really grow Reebok mm-hmm. we're not we're not growing because okay I would take some orders but not many so having sort of had a few of these uh, retailers say who's Reebok and why do I need Reebok? I decided that I'd better find some other way to get my shoes uh, onto the market. And in those days, I don't know if it still exists, the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, every every running club was a member of the three A's. You almost had to be. And the three A's produced a handbook. And in the handbook, every club was in the handbook, and the secretary and his address, the secretary's name and address, was in the handbook. And I, there must have been three over 300. Mm-hmm. Didn't take much thinking that why don't I write a letter to every one of these clubs and offer them a discount, which I did. And I, I also put in the letter that if anybody in the club wants to become a Reebok agent, they can become the agent and they can have the discount. They can have the 15% discount. And uh, the first letter I sent out, I got over 100 uh, agents. Wow. So over 100. That's they a third. Came, yes, a third of the – I mean, and after a second letter, I, I think I ended up with over 200 uh, agents. That's incredible. So, so this was direct selling. <clears throat> it goes on now. And uh, – We've been going, we've been doing this for about six months when I start getting telephone calls from these retailers who had said, who's Reebok? And they had quite a lot phoned me up and said, I believe you're selling direct to our athletic club. And I said, where are you? You tell me, where. oh, yes, yes, I have an agent in the club. And uh, the, the guys would say, well, look, if you stop selling direct to the athletes, we'll stock your shoes. Oh, so that's great. But um, I thought about it for a, a short while, and then I refused. I said, no, um, we're not s- stopping selling direct because it's our marketing. This is our form of marketing. If you want to sell uh, my shoes, you can do, because you will get them at wholesale price, which is less than half price. I said, I'm only giving the... Uh, I'm only giving the agents 15%, and I'm sure, I said, I'm sure you would give your local club a uh, 15% discount. And most of them said, yeah, yeah, we usually give a discount to clubs, yes. So, well, if you take my shoes, all my advertising, I will advertise you as one of my dealers. And uh, But I'm not, sell- I'm not stopping selling direct. Mm-hmm. I would say 90% of the, uh, of the retailers accepted that. They accepted that. Ten percent said, "Oh well, we're not going to bother." But uh, you know, we didn't want to lose that control that we had. 
So I think that's incredible. And it's such an important lesson in business because so often in business, when we're dealing with a potential sale, we feel that we have to give everything that is being asked of us in mm -hmm. order to secure the sale, but that devalues your product, your service, your offering, doesn't it? You knew how to stand your ground and you knew your value. Yes, and so we grew and we, you know, we grew there, but in the UK, as I said, we couldn't get into football. Football was owned now by Adidas and a few other big uh, big players. So for me, the uh, the dilemma was, well, how do we, in those days, how do we grow the company? Now, uh, we, we have different words for, for this. And, and it's how do you scale your company now? Mm -hmm. So you've got to scale. And uh, same way, you know, if you want to change direction, you know, we, we would change direction. We would go from cycling, we went to running and whatever. Now you pivot. So yes. <laughs> these, these are all the new words. You pivot and you scale. So uh, I, I needed to scale our company. We needed to grow. And so what do you do? Do you just sort of make other sports footwear products? We made a few cricket boots, but cricket boots were a bit a bit difficult cricket. It, uh, it, it was just a summer game. And one year, everybody who was manufacturing sports football would produce cricket boots because somebody said, we've no cricket boots. So every, and then the next year, nobody would produce them because there wasn't the demand anymore. So cricket was not a, not a good thing to go into. We were into rugby, rugby league in particular, not, uh, not rugby union. Mm -hmm. Rugby league was a North of England sport. And what we were looking for, we, we sort of called it white space. We wanted the white space, a space where it's going to be easier to get into or there's nobody there. And how can we get in this white space? So we looked for white space. That, that meant we could grow our company. That's okay. Orienteering, uh, fell running. Fell running was a north of England sport. So uh, there were lots of areas, small areas that we could we could work into, but really to, to really grow the business, really to scale our business, I needed America, because in America, every every college, every university has a coach, and coach is God. Yeah, coach is God in in, in America, and there's so much opportunity, so much opportunity. So uh, even Fosters were selling to America when uh, when I was working there. But the Americans had come, a guy called Frank Bryan and uh, Bob Sheehan Jack. They were, they were head coaches at Yale University. Mm -hmm. And they'd come across to buy. Foster's, my father and I had not gone out there seeking the business. These guys had come across because they'd heard of Foster's. Foster's, Jerry Foster's, they were world famous. They did produce uh, shoes for a lot of famous people. and uh, But in those days, uh, athletics, footwear was only performance. It, right now it's street. I mean, everybody's a fashion company now. You know, Reebok, Adidas, Nike, they're all fashion companies. But in those days, it was pure performance. So the volume's not massive. But uh, the only way I could extend our market was really to go into America. A lot of people said, why don't you go to Europe? Uh, well, we've done a bit of research on Europe. The problem is we had Adidas and Puma were big in Europe. Mm. How do you get into Europe? Plus there's 20-something languages 
and the cultures that they're so different. So all those markets, okay, there were 350, 400 million people in Europe. And, but that buying power was nothing like the buying power in America. Yeah. You know, we, we did some research. And in America, if you class America as 100, the next sizable market was Japan, and that was about 35 by comparison. Mm-hmm. And then we got to Germany, and Germany was about 25. The UK was down at about 18, something like that, and very sad. So to me, it was America. And uh, so I would talk to uh, Jeff and uh, our people, um, wives and whatever, and said, you know, we've got America. Can't afford it. We can't afford to send you to America. Oh, what are we doing? Well, it just so happened that I, I picked up a magazine. It was called Eurosport. And in the magazine, the uh, British government were advertising for people to export, and they wanted us to export to America. And they were willing to pay for a stand at the NSGA, which is the National Sporting Goods of America. They were willing to pay for the stand. They were willing to pay for our return airfare and 50% of our costs whilst we were there. Well, it was almost cheaper to go to America than stay at home. <laughs> right. I had no resistance then from the family, no resistance. Absolutely. You, you can go to America. However, the downside of this was the NSGA show was uh, the first week in February in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Chicago in February is minus 20 degrees. <laughs> it's freezing. And it was freezing. But I, I went. I went with a friend. I went together, a friend called uh, Bob Brigham. Brigham is, uh, they they have uh, outdoor stores in the UK. They're about six or seven right now. Yeah, it's quite, quite a big. Uh, Ellis Brigham, I think, is the store. But Bob Brigham, he only had one store at the time. So, but And, and we were making a climbing boot for him. The fact we were making a climbing boot for him. So we both went off to Chicago. And... Uh, Okay, I had people coming up and saying, well, love your product, where do I buy them? And I'm saying, oh, well, England. And they're looking at me and saying, is that New England? Um, no, 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 not New England. It's across the water. Oh, near London. Near London, yes. <laughs> I didn't sell any shoes. However, Bob sold, he got quite a nice order for climbing boots which was good. And since he, since we made the climbing boots, that was okay. It worked for us as well. But uh, I did realize that I needed a distributor. Yeah. I needed someone who would actually, and we didn't have enough finance to be able to set up our own distribution in America. We didn't have that sort of money. So uh, this is 1968. And I went every year to the NSGA show and I didn't get it. Well, when did I break into the American market? I broke into the American market in 1979. 11 years. It took me 11 years to get into the American market. I had, in between, in those 11 years, I had at least six distribution attempts. People who wanted to uh, take the product, but for whatever reason, we just couldn't get over the line. It was... uh, they probably had the same problem I had going to the sports stores, and people would say, "Who's Reebok?" 
that's yeah. true perseverance. Um, I mean, that's that's quite incredible, Joe, to keep going through those years and trying another approach, trying another way, another organization to distribute with. Um, what kept you trying it still at that point at which it then worked? Uh, well, I, I guess really it was the fact that if, uh, if I looked around to say, where can I get, uh, how can I scale my business? How can, how can we grow? There was no opportunities in any other direction that uh, that we could afford. Yeah. At this moment of time, the government were paying for my opportunity to go to America. So I just kept going to America. And the fact that I had six people, they go, you know, well, we've got somebody else. Now we have Shu uh, Lang. We have these different, I had these different people uh, over this period of time. Um, and that would take 12 months for them to fail. <laughs> we try, we do this, we make a product, they would try, and, and eventually it would come to, no, it's no good, we, we, we can't do this. But uh, the thing that really did it for us, and, uh, and, and I guess that uh, you, this is where the luck comes in. We, we had some luck. By, when I started there in 1968, running in America was not that big. It had, it had just started the the craze for keeping fit, for going out and training. That just started in the late 60s. By 1975, it was immense. There were 350 million Americans and 10% were now running. 35 million Americans were out there running. So it was growing. Just, then you could have a part of that market. I mean, it's there. It's already yes. proven that it exists. Yes, it, it exists. But the big thing that happened is that during the 1970s, uh, a guy called Bob Anderson, he 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 um, he brought out Runner's World, which was a magazine. So he published a magazine, Runner's World. And Runner's World... It was great because Runner's World would tell you where all the running events were. Because when, when people went out and they, they trained, so it was good training, nice, keeping fit. But then they got interested and wanted to go into a race. And so they could go, they could do five kilometers, 10 kilometers, half marathons. And Runner's World advertised all these. Mm. So uh, everybody bought the Runner's World. And, it, and this also gave you the results of the, these races. So it started off as a, as a single page, one A4 sheet. <clears throat> and by 1975, it was a 60 pages, full color, big magazine, great magazine. And we started advertising it because that would, that would help us. And we did get some, uh, some orders. You know, people did order through that, but I've not got a distribution. Yeah. But Runners World, and Runners World was doing so well. And Nike, Nike were growing because they were in America and they were growing with the running, with the running scene. They were really growing. But uh, Bob Anderson, he was selling a lot of magazines and he was making a lot of money. And he decided in his wisdom, he would tell everybody which was the best shoe to buy, which was the number one shoe. And I think it's from 1976 when he started this. And of course, the shoe that he thought was number one or that he said it was number one was Nike. So that's great. Well, you've got 35 million Americans out running. 
as soon as somebody tells them this is a number one shoe, at least 10% wanted to buy that shoe. So at least three and a half million Americans wanted to buy that Nike shoe. Mm-hmm. But Phil Knight is importing these shoes from Japan. Could he get that production? No. Because the shoe production, they can increase by working overtime, maybe working an extra day, but they can't. They can't produce that. So he couldn't get the shoes. In 12 months' time, Bob Anderson, in his wisdom, decided we'd have another number one shoe. We wouldn't stay with that one. So he, he put another one on there. I, I think it might have been New Balance. It might have been a Tonic, Brooks, uh, Sacconi, but it wasn't Reebok. <laughs> it certainly wasn't Reebok. Uh, we were too far away. Our advertising was much less than uh, Nike and other people. Okay, but the same thing happened. They couldn't get the product. Because whoever it was were importing them from uh, Korea or, uh, again, Taiwan, maybe. So they couldn't get the product. So either somebody told Bob Anderson, stop doing this. <laughs> you're ruining the business. Because you can imagine if you're a retailer, people are coming into your store. I, I like this uh, Nike shoe or I want this Sakoni. And we can't get it. You know, They couldn't get supplies. We can't get it. So the business was terrible. Mm. So Bob Anderson, in his wisdom, or with a bit of a, uh, advice from somebody, he changed it. He changed it to star ratings. So that instead of being a number one, five stars. If you got a five-star shoe, those, but you could have four or five five-star shoes. The way they judge them, they give them stars. And that was the time when I thought, I'm sure we can make a five-star shoe. I'm sure we can, because... We're, we were in the business. We knew exactly what was going on. So uh, this was in 1978 for the 1979 um, shoe edition. And uh, we making, in fact, we made the shoe that we thought would be a good five-star shoe. And we, te- we tested this out at the Edmonton uh, Commonwealth Games in 1978. And we, we produced the gold range. Mm-hmm. Aztec would be our training shoe. Um, Midas would be our racing shoe. And uh, Inca would be our spike track shoe. That was our gold range. And we, we got a lot of medals at, uh, at the Edmonton Commonwealth Games. Great. So we're ready now. We've got our shoe. And we send this to, uh, well, send them all to Runners World to get them tested. Uh, their way of testing. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the uh, 1979, in I went to America to the NSGA show, and uh, of course by that time, so many people wanted to be in the running business, and we were at the show, and I I was visited by Kmart, uh, Kmart uh, like Tesco, like Adidas, Asda, only they sold sports goods and all sorts of goods, and Kmart. Very big. And the guy came up, um, I seem to remember his name as Biasati. And he said, we want, uh, we'd like to buy 25,000 pairs. That was was the biggest order. The biggest order before that had been 20,000 pairs, which was for the Norwegian army. But uh, they wanted to buy 25,000 pairs. Oh, right. And he said, but we, uh, we want a better price. Well, 
I knew if we got a five-star shoe, and I knew at that time, in order to get really get into America, we had to produce a better price. And the other thing was our factory was quite small. Mm. 25,000 pairs would have been almost six months' work at our factory. It was a lot. So I had a friend at Barter. You probably don't know Barter, but Barter, Barter, they had a factory down at Tilbury. Um, and they're still, they're still the, by volume, they're still the biggest manufacturers in the world. And they manufacture all around the world mm-hmm. by volume. Um, so I had a friend who'd just gone there and he was setting up their sports division. And he said, Joe, <coughs> if you get a five-star shoe, you get a big we'll help you. So I said, okay, fine, that's good. But also, uh, they wanted a better price. And uh, whilst, whilst, whilst Barter could do a better price than we could do at our factory, mm. that was not better enough. Uh, it meant career. And I, I knew that this would happen, so I made I made arrangements. I met up with some people who were the agents for a Korean factory. And uh, so... I wasn't phased by the fact that he wanted a better price. I said, yeah, we, we can we can manage that. Okay, that was that was fine. And I'm thinking, yeah, wow, you know, we've cracked it. We're on the market now. But then towards the end of the NSGA show at, uh, in February, I met a guy called Paul Fireman. He was also an exhibitor. Mm-hmm. Paul Fireman, uh, <clears throat> he was uh, he was running a company called Boston Camping. Mm-hmm. And so that's in the outdoor business, not the sports goods business. Uh, and uh, but I could tell he was pretty well fed up with what he was doing. You know, they've been selling tents, fishing lines, you name it, anything that's to do with the outdoor business. And he'd been doing this for 10 years, and I don't think his business was going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But he knew the running business was really growing. And he said, Joe, he said, if you get a five-star shoe, I'll be your distributor. I'm thinking, well, this guy's already got a business. And uh, so he's got teams of uh, uh, salesmen. You know, maybe this will be a good job. And I like Paul. I could talk to him. You know, he was a guy I could really get on on with and we could chat. The other guy was a buyer, just a buyer from a very big organization. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe Paul's a better bet. Uh, maybe we'll not get the 20,000 pairs, but uh, who knows? Anyway, I went back to the UK. This was February. The shoe magazine doesn't come out until August. So I've got a long time to wait. Mm-hmm. Our shoes are there being tested. So I go back to America in May, and I meet up with uh, the guys at Biasati and go, go to their head office. <clears throat> um, and... I'm I'm taken to this this guy, this Biasati. He says he's he's in a big big room, about another hundred buyers, and uh, I get to sit and we talk, and he yeah we arrange it. I give him the price, and I've got a better price now. So yeah, he was ready to give an order, place an order, and I said okay, well uh, we'll think it think it over. Then I went from there, I went to Boston to meet up with Paul Feynman, and uh, I met his team. There was his brother and his brother-in-law and a few salesmen and whatever, right? Great. Sounds good. Okay. So I, I was pretty sure that if I was going to go with anybody, it would be with Paul Feynman. Mm. So I go back and the last week in July, 
you know, the, the magazines always come out a week before the uh, the month. Yeah. I, I phoned Paul and I said, Paul, <clears throat> can you just go down to the local kiosk and see if Runs World is there? It should be by now and see how we did, see if we got our five stars. Um, okay. An hour later, Paul came back on the phone. He said, Joe, he said, Aztec, five stars. That was it. That was our entry to the market. But he said, also, Midas and Inca, they also got five stars. <clears throat> so we had just made the entry into the American market with three five-star shoes. And instead of us trying to push onto the market, everybody reading Runga's World, at least, I would, I would say at least 20 million would buy that magazine. Mm-hmm. And they would see us with a five-star shoe. <clears throat> there were about three or four. So we were one of, say, four uh, companies with five-star shoe. And that was it. Amazing. All of a sudden, we were on the American market. And then you're just on a trajectory. And so much, so much effort and so much time had gone into getting yourself into that moment. When you hit that trajectory and everything starts moving, and then it's it's about building your production, your flow, uh, your distribution network. My God. So what did you do from that point? Well, at that point, it was a matter of, okay, um, we had to wait a bit whilst uh, Paul Feynman got organised, and I went across. I went across to America to see Paul, to see uh, Boston Camping. Paul picked me up at the airport, and we went to a totally different office. Oh, I said, you know, why are you not uh, sharing this with the Boston campus? It is not big enough, Boston camp. We've shut the business. They closed the business. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. oh, I said, what's happening to Steve, his brother? And uh, well, Steve's gone doing this. My brother-in-law's gone doing that. I'm doing Reebok. So... <laughs> it rather stunned me to think, ah, oh, no, we're complete new company. Yeah. But okay, okay. So they set up a new company and we uh, placed orders. But at this time, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have really production coming from the Far East. We were still working with them. <clears throat> but my guy at uh, Tilbury and Barter said, yeah, we're going to make shoes. And, uh, Paul placed two orders for 10,000 pairs each because he had orders to, to compete. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Barter did make the shoes. The only problem is, is they didn't quite get it right. Oh, dear. They, uh, because Barter were really street shoe people. And uh, when, when, when they looked at our shoe, they said, oh, we could improve this, we could improve this. What they meant is they could change it, yeah. and uh, they they put the through the shoe through time and motion study, and they said, well, if we instead of making the the front of the shoe, our, our shoe had a we call it the facing, and the facing was quite aggressive mm. on purpose. We made it quite aggressive so that people felt that this shoe would really be good shoes. Mm. Uh, so instead of it being aggressive, they made it round. Why did they make it round? Because the sewing machinists 
instead of having to stop as they had to on our stop and go slowly around this corner and come across and stop again. No, they could just go straight around and that would save time, would save money. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> instead of me getting in between the production, we, we sent the orders straight to Barter and Barter would deal directly with America. Mm-hmm. So that I didn't want to be sort of I didn't want to be paying barter and then charging the Americas. The whole deal we 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 made it so it was better for America to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they gave us a credit line, which is good. The problem with Korea is that they would need uh, a letter of credit. In other words, you you ha- they have to know you've got the money before they'll make your product. Well. As it happened, Paul didn't have that much money, but he got the shoes. And uh, there were two things wrong with it. It, In fact, he he phoned me shortly after getting the shoes and said, Joe, there's something wrong with these shoes, and I I don't know what it is. And um, so I had him send a pair over, and then uh, we could see that they changed the shape, they changed the design a bit. But the worst problem was that Barter, a big company, very big, very big company, and they had their own rubber factory. So the the rubber, the, the sponge rubber, that they, were, they, they could make it themselves in their own factory. The problem was it's called EVA. It is a plastic rather than rubber, mm-hmm. and they hadn't made EVA before. So they made this EVA, and they must have got something wrong. About 10% of the sheets that they made, they didn't cure it enough. So instead of it being spongy, when you pressed it, it collapsed. So 10% of this, these products they'd sent to America were being sent back because this sort of just collapsed. And all Paul Feynman did, he just sent them new shoes. He just replaced them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, of course, we had a, a bit of an argument with Barter to say, look, you know, you've done two things wrong. One, you've changed the shoe, its appearance. The other one is they're falling apart because they're... they're so, not mm. Yeah. So, I mean, two things here. It, it could have killed us, <clears throat> but Americans don't worry too much about that. They, you know, if it was in the UK at that time, yeah, that would have been it. Yeah. All that product would have come back and would have been a dead company. In America, they, they give you an opportunity. You know, that's okay, you know. Send us a new pair. Yes, we'll have a new pair. So uh, he didn't pay for the shoes, but he managed to keep his customers <clears throat> by just replacing them. Yeah. So unfortunately, by this time, we had got production coming out of Korea. So his next batch of shoes, they came from Korea. And Paul never paid for the barter shoes. And... That way we managed to stay in business and, you know, we talked about, well, send them back. And I said, you can't send them back because if you send them back, they'll just, dis- they'd have to, you have to destroy them because they're wrong. That must so, have been a huge cost for you, uh, the business, and then the stress involved. How did you get through that? Well, I, I think when there's so much going on and so much activity and you you're charging about doing different things. You're trying to get production right. Going to getting Korea to get the production. I went. I went out to Korea, and, uh, and that's that in itself was a story. <laughs> but uh, I went out to Korea, and 
we we got good product so we could see good product coming through uh the the orders kept coming so we managed to get over that hurdle and um and, and we became a running company but you know that's, that's not now we're going to talk about pivoting because uh we had we had a, a young guy down in uh, he was down in in los angeles and uh, he was a tech rep a tech rep doesn't go out to sell the product. What he does, he goes into the store, talks to all the salespeople, and shows them all the benefits. This is a, this will do this. This will do this. This this is the good things. This is our five star shoe. And so he goes in. The guy's called Arhil Martinez. And uh, Arnold doing nice business, doing nice, yes. But his wife, his wife, is going to aerobic classes. And she's coming back with friends, and they follow it. Oh, it's great, wonderful. And I'll say, what, what do you do with aerobics? What, what is aerobics? And uh, his wife, Frankie, Frankie said, well, we're, we're actually exercising to music, and we love it. Oh, right. Arnold went down to the next uh, class, next time she went. They have an instructor. She's wearing a pair of sneakers. We think they were New Balance. Half the class are wearing the same shoe. The other half of the class, they were for no, no shoes at all. And this was Arnold's light bulb moment. And he, uh, he sort of thought, why don't we make a shoe for aerobics? Why don't we make it on a woman's last, just woman's sizes? <clears throat> and why don't we make it out of glove leather so it's so soft? Great. And that was revolutionary. Nobody was making sports <laughs> shoes that soft. Oh, no, they, they weren't. Indeed, they weren't. And Arnold thought, he's in Los Angeles. So he got the next flight he could do to Boston, which is almost straight across the opposite side of America. And he went to see Paul Fireman. And he said to Paul, Paul, we uh, we should be making some of these shoes. It's called aerobics. And Paul said, slow down. Slow down, Arnold. We're a running company. And we're doing nicely, thank you. We're doing well. Why Why do we want to make dancing shoes for girls? Well, Arthur tried, but all, all he could get from Paul was, look, you know, we're, we're, we're doing what we're doing, and we're doing okay. You know. Don't mess just with watch it. it. Yeah, just watch what's going on there. And maybe, if, maybe if it sort of uh, starts to grow, we'll get involved. Anyway, Arthur... Uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't fall for this. He didn't want this at all. So he he went round to the back door and had a word with a guy called Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our product man. He did a better job with Steve, and Steve Steve actually got him two hundred pairs of samples, mm-hmm. which he got down to Arnold. Arnold gave them to the instructors, and because aerobics then down in Los Angeles was really growing. To the uh, some of the leading girls, you know, we were down there doing aerobics, and they loved them. Fabulous, they loved them. Problem: they were made with glove leather. Now, uh, whilst we had made a shoe out of glove leather, we had made it suede side out, so we'd reuse it suede. Whereas the aerobic shoes, it was white, which was a finished leather. So what they had to do with that. They had to take the surface off. 
<clears throat> because you had to stick a sole on it. And you had to take the surface off in order for the adhesive to go into the leather. Mm-hmm. So it would take the sole. But if you can think, glove leather is one millimeter thick. One millimeter. <clears throat> and then you, you take some of the surface off. So you end up with about 0.7 of a millimeter, which is nothing. Glove leather, anyway, you can actually just rip it like paper. It will just rip so simple. So you're putting a sole on it. It's very thin. And what was happening is where the leather met the sole, this was just breaking out, just ripping. They would last about a month, maybe even less. And then they just ripped apart. <clears throat> Fortunately, we're talking about America, we're talking about Los Angeles, and the girls there just didn't care. The shoes are that comfortable. They loved them. And they just went out and bought another pair. Wow. The rest of the world, as I say, would have killed us because, no, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, we, did, we did cure the problem. We, we managed to get um, more like garment leather, much thicker but still soft. So we had the softness there, but we had to get this thicker leather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At this time, we were doing, we thought we were doing pretty well. We were a $9 million company. And as a $9 million company, great. All of a sudden, we were robbers. But $9 million wasn't a big company. So we were not known in America uh, as, a, as a big running shoe company. We were only a small company. I'll just have a drink. And uh, <clears throat> as a small company, not many people knew us. Like they, they knew Adidas, they knew Nike. Both those companies were massive. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they were male, sweaty. All of a sudden, we became a woman's company. This Reebok company was making women's shoes, women's athletic shoes. <clears throat> so all, all of a sudden we were owned by women. This no, this is this is something special. And these shoes I said they were made on a woman's last, only in women's sizes, so men couldn't buy them. They <clears throat> just wouldn't fit men, men's feet. And you know, it was almost a, a marketing strategy that that was fantastic. Because that beautiful white space that you were talking about. That was the white space. That was the white space. I mean, absolutely the white space. That was incredible. And both Adidas and Nike stepped back and said, no, this is only a fad. Mm-hmm. Not for us. Well, from being 9 million, the year after we were 30 million. Wow. Then from 30 million, we went to, uh, I think it was 90 million. From 90 million, we went to 300 million. And then from 300 million, we went to 900 million. In in about five years, we'd gone from almost zero to almost a billion. And, you know, well, we've got to ask the question, how did we do it? How, How did it happen? The demand was there. And the biggest problem we had was filling the demand because it just... Women just all over just wanted this shoe. 
And uh, the biggest problem, <clears throat> we, I mean, you think that how do you afford to do it? How do you manage the finances? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, meant for giving up some of the company, but we, we did get a credit line from ASCO. ASCO is part of Pentland. I don't know if you know Pentland Industries. Um, Pentland owned JD Sports. You know, they, and they had a, a sourcing company, Stephen Rubin, Pentland. He had a sourcing company called ASCO, and uh, they gave us this credit line. And it was the credit line that uh, really, really made Reebok. Because you know, if we went to the credit line, we wouldn't have been able to take the product. I think after about six or nine months, maybe in a bit of nine months, um, Stephen Rubin sort of phoned Paul Fireman and said, Paul, you owe me $20 million. And Paul said, well, that's the credit line. <laughs> and Stephen was getting a little bit worried that, uh, okay, the shoes were selling, yeah, the whole process, but by mm -hmm. he, he was $20 million into, uh, into the company mm -hmm. by the credit line. It paid him very well. I mean, Stephen made a lot of money out of it. It's, uh, yeah. So I don't think it was... He, well, I, I can understand that he was worried when there was, he, he was owed twenty million. But as, as the company grew, he could oversee, and he made he made money out of every pair. He made money, out of, so he was delighted at the fact that the sales were growing the way they were. But the biggest uh, the biggest problem that uh, we had was going from three hundred million to nine hundred million. I mean, how do the factories? We got to this point again. How do the factories produce all that? Yeah. And that we couldn't get factories to produce that much. Fortunately, during that growth time, Nike hit a wall. Nike's sales flattened and went down. And they came out of about three or four factories in Korea, mm -hmm. just when we wanted them. And we moved in. And if that hadn't have happened to Nike at that time, we, we wouldn't have had the opportunity. We wouldn't have been able to satisfy orders. Other people would have come in and Reebok wouldn't have been seen as the aerobics company. So, you know, you need that, that bit of luck. Things to happen be in your favour. And, of course, from there, we just went into basketball and into soccer and just grew until we eventually came to very nearly four billion. Wow. But it's it's really I think it's far from luck. You're being far too modest in that. I mean, you have made. Incredibly well, I, I, I agree with you. You've got to work at it. Yeah. But you know, if aerobics hadn't come along at that time, if uh, running hadn't have been something that grew in America, you know, we were there at the right time. That's the luck. I mean, I'm, when we talk about luck. I've had many conversations with a lot of people and uh, we've done a lot of podcasts and quite a few in America. And there's a guy in America in New York, uh, he's called Pink, I think. And he was quite a big uh, uh, podcaster. And we we're talking about luck. And, and he agreed with me. He said, Joe, he said, uh, I think I am lucky that I was born in New York in America. Mm -hmm. I, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I'm lucky that I'm born. And so I think there's that element of luck. Okay, looking for white space. You know, you've got to look for it. Yeah. You know, you've got to look for your luck. But if, uh, you know, if you're born in the middle of Africa, 
you, you know, that's different. So recognize luck. Anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur has got to recognize luck. But you've got to also look for it. Yeah. Look for the white space. Look for a place where you can be. And, you know, if you look for long enough, yes, you will find luck. Yeah. The, the biggest problem I see that people have is that they're a little bit hesitant. Uh, I'm not sure. Should I really try this? By that time, the train's gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. So it's taking risks. Not gambling. It's taking risks. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneur is a risk taker. <clears throat> Sees an opportunity and takes that risk. <clears throat> and that's what you have to do. I think it's it's there. Uh, and people ask me, can you uh, uh, can anybody be an entrepreneur? And uh, <clears throat> my answer is yes. However, it's better being an optimist if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Because if you're not an optimist, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very hard work. Yes. You've built an incredible legacy uh, with Reebok. I mean, it's just such a recognizable brand, such a beloved brand. And people don't realize this huge story that goes on to create that and all of the business decisions and the heart and the soul and the bravery that gets poured into creating all of that. It's been a, a heck of a journey that you have taken the business on and you know, your bravery really shines out. Your ability to keep on going and to keep on saying, I'm gonna make this work, I'm gonna find a way. It's just inspirational. So Joe, what would be some of the key lessons that you personally took out from that business journey and that life journey well, I mean, the thing is, it's not a straight road. <laughs> nothing, nothing is perfectly straight. You go there and you have to make decisions on this way or that way. And what you've got to also remember is that if you make the wrong decision, don't worry. You can change it. Don't worry. If you fail on something, don't worry. Failure is just a lesson. It's just something. You know, we uh, we have to change our name, as you yes. said from from Mercury to Reebok, and that's a story in itself, and uh, it's, it's quite a quite a fun story. If you've read it in the book, it's a, you pick up on that. And uh, you know, when when we had to change our name, we were sort of stunned. Just a minute, you know, we we've got to be in love with this. It's like it's, it's our company. It's what we're doing, you know. And uh, as it, as it happened, we changed from Mercury to Reebok, and I think Reebok was a better name. Yeah. Uh, four years into our business, we got a letter from the Adidas lawyers who said that our silhouette, with two stripes and a T-bar, they said um, that's an infringement on the Adidas three stripes. We're a small company. Adidas are big. And we're thinking, why? What on earth are they worried about? And then we turned that around and said, just a minute. Adidas know we're here. Adidas found it necessary to write us a letter because we're small, we're Reebok, but we're here. What do we do? Well, we change the silhouette and we end up with a vector. And, and the vector to us is better than the two stripes and the two bar. So these things that come to you seemingly a problem are really a bit of a challenge. And you need those challenges. Because you need to be so into what you're doing that you you can get around them. 
You know, we didn't go head to head with Adidas and say, no, 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 we, you know, we're going to keep our two uh, two straps and a T bar. No, we don't need that. We we can we can get around that, and and so we did. We avoided a clash. We, but it, it's a problem, and I think you need those to keep you alert, to keep you working. If everything is so simple, you just press a button and product comes out at the other end. Mm. You know, you, you need something that uh, makes you makes you think. And when you think, you you start to plan. Yeah. You start to feel, oh, just a minute, we can we can change something here. You know, we we can do something that uh, is, because it's different. We hadn't thought differently until somebody told us you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, can't we? Well, well, we can do better. <laughs> and I love, I, I love that energy of problem solving. Um, and so many people talk about. Uh, how they say there are no problems, only opportunities. Well, that's not true. There are plenty of problems, but you can turn your problem into an opportunity. Yes, yes. Rather than seeing it just simply as a problem or only ignoring the problem and seeing an opportunity. You have clearly been a powerhouse of turning problems into opportunities and riding that wave. Well, I, th- I think that... Um... You almost start to look for the problems because you 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 realize that this energizes you. This energizes you know <clears throat> how can we do this differently? Yeah, you know, and I know many a time is like you look in the company and you know what are you doing that's different? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, it's not just asking the question what are you doing that's different because it, what you've got to have is uh, is a motivation to to change motivation to do something that uh, nobody else has done or something that you can you know make that difference and if you can make that difference and I say we were lucky because we we had Arnold Martinez down there in Los Angeles we had his wife go into aerobic classes and uh, so you you put these together yes if you if you make yourself visible enough you will get the opportunities and uh, right now uh, we have a lot of opportunities now because I wrote the book. I wrote the book because when I stepped back from Reba, and we're in Tenerife now, and it was in Tenerife, I'm just lying down on, on the uh, bed sort of thing, and you know we didn't have computers. You know we we now was like you're just across the table from me. We didn't have computers. We didn't have smartphones when I was at Reba. They only came since, but when I was in Tenerife, okay, we've suddenly we've got uh, smartphones, suddenly we've got computers, and we get Google and we get Wikipedia, and Wikipedia and Google are telling me this is how Reebok started. No, there's even a photograph of Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. It wasn't me. He may well have been called Joe Foster, but he certainly wasn't the founder of Reebok. <clears throat> so. I guess I'm looking here now. I've got another challenge. <laughs> you know, this is another thing. I've got to put this right. You know, you can't do it. So I started writing the book. It took a while. Took a lot of uh, drafts and whatever, but eventually got the book out. And the book was there to say, "This is how Reebok started, not what you're saying." This is a, and <clears throat> what has happened with that? A bit like yourself, you you pick up on the things we did, the uh, things we faced, and. It has become somewhat of a business book. 
small business. You know, this is, you start just the two of you, just Jeff and myself. You know, we're not talking about a conglomerate that started you know, at that point. It, it was already doing millions, and then it's invented something. No, we were just small. We were just two of us, and it was it was just a matter of uh, okay, face your challenges, and uh, the challenges today are so different. Everything is so different today. I look at retail today, and it's so different from when when I was out there. So I was facing my challenges when I was a young man. You know, people say to me, "You know, what would the young Joe be doing now?" And uh, I'm saying, "Well, what he'd be doing is asking you because you're young now. Mm -hmm. You're the people who are going to take this. You've got to take things forward. You know, you you've got to have your ideas. You've got to know." what you were doing. So you know, he'd be doing the same thing now. He would be absolutely knowing everything about computing, everything that that really would improve his business. Yeah. He, would, he would learn everything about that because that's that's the way things are going. And that, you know, so anybody who's an entrepreneur now, and we do have people coming to us with uh, because they have their ideas and... Um, yeah, there's about three or four that we're, we're working with. And that's part of your foundation, isn't it? So you have <laughs> a foundation. Well, we don't necessarily have a foundation, but we, we just work at it, uh, working with small people, people who just come up with some great ideas. And it's how to get that great idea out there to the world. Yeah. So that the world can see it and uh, make the most of it. It's, uh, yeah, and we're we're enjoying that. Uh, but uh, the book is really—it's uh, a bit like a, a calling card. The book, you know, people are saying, "Well, can you come out? Can you can you speak to us on this? Can you speak to us?" On yes, this? As as should, it's an amazing book, and it really should be read by every business that needs to help themselves to figure out how to scale, how to grow, how to overcome how to be successful. Yeah. It really is an incredible story and education. And it's fantastic that you got that inspiration just from realizing people have reported the story of Reebok Ron. <laughs> they, they assumed it was your grandfather who started Reebok. It wasn't. Um, so yeah. thank you for setting the story straight because it's given us an incredible business book to help. And I know it's going to inspire so many people. Joe, I'm so grateful for you sharing all of this with us today. Um, your, your experience and your legacy are very inspirational. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I mean, I, I just took it on as a job. <laughs> and it's how so many things start. <laughs> you know, but I love the energy that you talk about it with. From the very beginning, you're talking about, yes, it, it, it was you needed an existence. You needed money coming in. But then you were instantly talking about how to scale, how to scale. Yeah. And that's the energy that created the, the incredible brand of Reebok that has so much heart and soul and energy in it. So it's, it's a very inspirational story, certainly for me, and I know for many others as well. Um, but again, thank you for sharing it. Any last pearl of wisdom that you would love to share with people? Well, I just think you have to stay with it. You have to keep going. You just have to keep going. And I think there is more opportunity today than we had. And the reason for that is you now have computers. You, you know, Julie and I, we don't, we don't have a home. 
because we started traveling, we sold our property, and we've never stopped traveling. You have a computer, you can work anywhere. Absolutely. Anywhere. You can, you can you go into speak? any market. Yeah, and you're heading off again to Germany, then you're going to the US, and you yeah. have so much that you're sharing uh, along the way. So, yeah, you can always build your business from anywhere. You can. You can just build your business now. And uh, the opportunities are just there. Plenty of opportunities. It's just you've got to see them. I think that that's probably the same thing. When we were young, you have to see where the opportunity is. But I think there are many opportunities today. Many. So, yeah, we enjoy life. Well, from being a lad from Bolton to creating the incredible brand, uh, oh, the amazing brand of Reebok, I have loved learning about your story and your journey and thank you so much again um, to both of you Joe I know Julie's not there but Julie is the headquarters she is steering the ship always with you Um, so thank you to you both uh, so much for your time and your heart that you spent here today Um, and we want to thank all of our listeners as well for joining in for this episode of Limitless Potential and learning from the very inspirational founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you again soon for another story and more limitless potential. See you soon.